the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to this KGNW broadcast special, Heart of the City. Pastors, ministry leaders, and churches have received a call to serve their communities with the love and compassion of Christ. The call is from God's heart to the heart of the city. Well, this is Heart of the City. I'm Chuck Olmstead, and uh, we like to spend uh, this time each week uh, sharing with uh, pastors and ministry leaders about their own personal testimonies. And we call this Heart of the City because uh, the KGNW studios are literally in the heart of downtown Seattle. We're right across the street from CenturyLink Field. But Heart of the City also refers to the heart of the Lord towards this city and the heart of pastors and ministry leaders that are affecting change and are, are sharing the good news of Jesus Christ in our community. And today I have a, a man with me that I've just met recently at a, at a light, uh, light Up the City uh, a meeting with, uh, through Union Gospel Mission. His name's Bill Bowers. And uh, Bill, I'd like to welcome you here today. Good morning. Thanks, Chuck. Glad, yeah. to, glad to be here. Well, as I was sharing with my my friend Chris Gaugh about, uh, about uh, various uh, people that we were meeting, he mentioned you and uh, said, this guy is a networking guy. He knows a lot of people in the, all over the place in the Puyallup area. And so uh, I thought, you know what, I'd, I'd like to get to know you. And I'd like our KGNW listeners to get to know you as well. And uh, we spend uh, uh, quite a bit of time during this program just uh, having people share their testimonies. We hear a lot of the Word on KGNW, a lot of great teaching, but I think there's real power in, in people being able to share on a personal level how the Lord uh, has worked in their life and how they came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so we do that during this time. So uh, just, I'd like to start at the very beginning. Grow up around here? Did you? Uh, are you originally from the Puyallup area, or where did you? Where did you grow up? Well, actually, I grew up in eastern Washington. So we grew up as a farm boy. Lived on different farms around uh, Tri Cities, uh, Moses Lake, Connell, small farm towns in eastern Washington. My dad was a farmer, so we did that. Moved from farm to farm, taking care of farms. Uh, as far as you know, the spiritual journey as a kid, I think I believed in God when I was small. But then uh, in the teenage years, my father got killed when I was 13. And, um, and what little faith I may have had, that may have rocked that at that time, I really don't recall. But then we moved to the city of Kennewick, which was a big city compared to living on farms all of your life. And I got involved in some of the self-destructive behavior and what I like to call corporate stupidity of the 70s as far as drugs and alcohol and found a lot of other friends that didn't have fathers, so there wasn't anybody kind of watching out for them. So we kind of pooled our ignorance and uh, got involved in some negative things, dropped out of school in 10th grade, left home when I was 17, and 
uh, found myself in Denver, Colorado when I was 18 years old. <laughs> wow, wow. So, so. so do you think, uh, was that, and not to, you know, dig up old wounds, but your father passing away, it was an, he, you said he was killed, was it an accident or was it? No, he was uh, shot by his best friend and they were the only two there that night, so we'd never really know exactly oh, what wow. happened. He eventually got convicted of manslaughter because at worst he was pointing a gun at somebody who yeah. shouldn't have been. Yeah. So. Yeah, so that kind of shook our world, moved to the bigger city, you know, like I said, got involved in some things there, left, went to Denver. At that point in time, I was 18, uh, would have said there is no God at that point in my life, uh-huh. but began to feel some emptiness, knew there was something missing, and so I... Uh, Had you gone to church as a child? Did your family have any kind of spiritual emphasis at all, or was uh, just it just kind of... a little bit off and on, but no real spiritual emphasis, just church and a little bit, you know, good morals, I think. My dad was an alcoholic, so we struggled with that most of... So that had a certain amount of instability in our childhood from that. Uh-huh, so. Yeah. So you're 18 years old. You're in Denver, Colorado. Denver, by, Colorado. By now, it's uh, you're, It's the, what, late 70s? Yeah, 1979, 1980. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so 1979. Knowing there's some emptiness going on and wandering around, and I walked by a Scientology building, and I, uh, whatever, I him, but Scientology, and they started enrolled me in some program, and one of the things they asked me, they said, what are your goals in life? Write down your goals. And I realized at that point in life, I had no goals. I had no plan for my life. I just was a blank page. And so I remember making a conscious decision that day that my new goal in life would be to do whatever other people need. And I look back, and it's like, oh, my God, that set me so free. But I, I was just a lost 18-year-old about that. I have no goals in life, so I'll just do what other people need. So dabbled in Scientology a bit, not really any spiritual awakening there. Then I dabbled in Hare Krishna, which was a thing back mm-hmm. in the 70s oh, yes. in Denver, Colorado. I have a good, good friend <laughs> who got saved out of Hare Krishna, Yeah, uh, Krishna consciousness. And, yeah, so mm-hmm. I don't know if I got saved out of it or saved by it, but, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. they gave me a book to read, and it was all about this meditation thing mm-hmm. and emptying your mind. And they said, well, just meditate and pick one word and just say it over and over again. And they said, some people use the word God. So I thought, okay, I'll use that word. So I'm sitting in my little one-room studio in Denver, Colorado. I'm in the restaurant business. I'm, God, God, God. And probably on about the 43rd time, I go, God, well, of course there's a God. I mean, it was just like this, I mean, just this awakening. Of course there's a God. What was I thinking? And so I got, the next day I got up and I went into where I worked, and there was a dishwasher who was a homosexual man, probably in his 50s, who had said he was a Christian. And I went in and I said, John, I believe in God. There's a God. You well, know, uh-huh. I wrote it down, May 28th, 1979, I believed there was a God. Um, and yeah. so he promptly bought me a Bible and started attending church a little bit. At the same time, I was getting high during the week, going to church on Sunday. I didn't you know, see any real conflict right. at the time. So. so I went on with that path and got engaged with a gal who thought she was Catholic. So one week we go to the Catholic church, one week we go to the Baptist church, and in between we would get high and sell drugs and did that for about a year or so. Um, and then... Uh, got engaged to marry her, went to Virginia. Long story short, realized that was wrong. I thought, okay, I've messed up life, and I felt this God thing. There's this God, he's kind of bugging me and, and uh, wanting something from me. Were you reading? You got a Bible. Were you reading yeah, the Word a, then? A little bit, a little bit, a little bit of reading the Word and going to church. Um, but, you know, not a real, didn't really know what it was about. I just knew there was this God factor. Right. And, and at one point, this girl said to me, if God's bugging you that much, you probably should just forget about him. And something inside me said, that's probably not the thing to do. <laughs> I probably need to forget about you. So I got disengaged. 
Anyway, I took out the map of the United States, and I thought, okay, I'll put my finger down, and wherever it lands, I'll go there, and I'll start this new life, and somehow God will be a part of it. And so I closed my eyes and put my finger down, and it landed on Springfield, Oregon. So I got a bus ticket from Newport News, Virginia, to Springfield, to Eugene, Oregon, where the bus lands, coast to coast. Um, halfway back, I stopped off in Denver to party for a few days, because I was still drinking every day and yeah. that kind of stuff, and drank for four days. In the morning, I got up to get back on the bus to head to Eugene, um, Four days before in Cheyenne, Wyoming, in the bus station, there was a Bible track behind the toilet paper thing, and I picked that up and put it in my pocket. Went to Denver, partied for four days, got up the morning I was going to leave, and I read that track, and it hit me that I needed a Savior, that Jesus Christ wanted to be my Savior, and it was just a Holy Spirit thing because I literally had a shoebox full of Bible tracks because in Denver they were on every post, and I'd always pick them up and collect them and put them in boxes. Why did you do that? I mean, why did you pick those up? I mean, it was well, I just... Well, I kind of thought I was a Christian or something. I don't really know what I thought. But yeah. I just picked them up. I liked the story. I had a, literally had a shoebox full of them. Uh-huh. I still have some of them from those days. Wow. But anyway, I read that one, accepted Christ as my Savior. The next day, I didn't drink. I didn't cuss. I took the rest of the ride to Eugene, Oregon, got off the bus at 3 o'clock in the morning. There was a big Baptist church, First Baptist Church of Eugene. right across the street from the bus station. Said, I'm going there Sunday. Found me a ratty motel room for 25 bucks a week back then and went to church there on Sunday and filled out the visitor card. And the next Wednesday night, a couple guys knocked on my ratty motel room door and said they were from the Baptist church and, and asked me if I was a Christian. I said, yeah. And they said, for how long? And I said, I think about seven days. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, the, uh, a young adult pastor took me under his wing and kind of began to teach me the ropes. And so I believe I was genuinely saved at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, started going to church, started doing some things with him, but then shortly thereafter uh, met my now current wife, and she wasn't saved at the time, and so we, you know, weren't necessarily following God together. But yeah, uh, we ended up. She ended up getting saved, and we got married, and then moved up here to Tacoma when the Tacoma Dome opened in 1983. So moved up here. We went to church once when we first got here, and then never went to church again. So I look back, and I think we were saved, you know, but sure. we weren't following Christ. We weren't engaged in the Christian community. We had pretty good morals, you know, living a good moral life. She had a two-year-old son when I met her, so I had a ready-made family at 21 years old. Had a daughter shortly thereafter. Um, anyway, so for the next 10 years, I worked in the restaurant business. I was a workaholic, so I owned my own bakery, partners in restaurants, doing that kind of stuff. And in 1991, my brother, who was uh, two and a half years older than me, I hadn't seen him for nine years, He'd gone back to the East Coast because he was in and out of prison and trouble, and so he just left, and then he came back and saw him a couple times, and then July 4th, 1991, um, we were over in Kennewick, Tri-Cities, uh, having a 4th of July barbecue, talking about life. And I knew he'd gotten saved when he was in prison because I remember getting a, a message from him. So, and so uh, we talked about that and started talking about God and this whole idea of following God, and neither one of us really knew what it meant. We both thought we were saved, but life for him wasn't a whole bunch better. He had a girlfriend and two little girls by then. I was doing okay in the restaurant business. Didn't really know the answer, but it was really the first honest conversation we had in life hmm. about what's going on inside, about the turmoil of you know, this God thing, really following God, and what does that mean? And you know, he said, I know I, I just need to totally follow God, whatever that means, or I'm going to die like Dad did. Mm. Just um, and anyway, that was the last time I saw my brother. I got a phone call a month later that he had been killed, uh, uh. just like my dad had been killed. So wow. my dad was killed by his best friend, and my brother was killed by his girlfriend. Um, and so their death certificates say the same thing: gunshot wound to the chest. And so, in the process of going over there to take care of the funeral and stuff, you know, I think that was probably the first time I, or the 
the memorable time where I experienced the reality of God with us, you know, during those four days of putting the funeral together and stuff and just the presence of God and some supernatural things that happened. And um, we got a letter that showed up that my brother wrote from prison that showed up two days after he died where he was talking about he had found peace with God and um, you can't add one day to your life by worrying. <laughs> wow. And that showed up, you know, two days after he was killed. And anyway, so... So I just rocked my world. Um, I was in the restaurant business at that time. And over the course, it took about a year for God to really work in me. And I had a waitress who her husband was a pastor. Mm -hmm. She started bringing me tapes, and I started listening to this pastor that thought he could change the world or some crazy thing, <laughs> uh, Pentecostal, charismatic guy. Um, uh -huh. And so I listened to those. And anyway, after about a year, I finally realized that God wanted me to surrender my life to him. And so when I tell my spiritual story. I say I gave God my eternal life when I was 20 years old because mm -hmm. that's an easy deal, right? When I'm dead, take me home. Right. Okay. But I didn't give him this life until I was 31. And, and there's a huge difference, and most believers out there know there's a difference. Some may not. I didn't know at the time. I thought for those 10 years I was, I guess, good to go. I thought I might go to heaven. I don't know. But, but I realized what God really wanted was for me to give him my life. So in 1992, I gave God my life, this life. You can do whatever you want to with it. Um, and out of that... What was your wife uh, during that time? You'd been married, have yeah. children. Yeah. What was she yeah. experiencing during that time? Yeah, I think we were both just kind of, you know, doing the American just dream living life, or whatever. Yeah, just living life. And again, we didn't really talk about God much. We believed He was there, but it's not like we had a habit of prayer at the dinner table or really right. any tradition at all. So that really began. To, so when that happened to me, and then we started going to church, and then we both kind of got immersed at the same time in that, uh -huh. and and it was just life breathing to us, a small, like say, charismatic church, but very life-breathing life to us, and it really helped me believe that, yeah, we not only can change the world, we're supposed to, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so that led me into, uh, long story short, I ended up, uh, there was a drive-by shooting in Pioneer Park in 1992, and there was this article in the paper about these kids hanging out in the park with nothing to do, and someone said, hey, we ought to go down there and see if we can help them out, so me and my pastor went down Met the chief of police. They said, hey, there's these kids hanging out in the park. I walked down there, and there they were. And they were me. Yeah. They were just like me just, when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. you know, nothing matters. No one cares. There's no way out. So get high, have fun, die young. So I knew them. <laughs> they, mm -hmm. they were just like me. And so anyway, so, I'd, so God just had me begin to start hanging out with them. And, and I ended up starting a nonprofit organization called Friends and Servants with the idea that these young people need a friend, someone who cares about them, and a servant, someone who's willing to help them. So I started that ministry, working with troubled teenagers, um, helping kids that were in the court system who had to do community service hours and pay court fines. So our ministry was about disconnecting them from the system and connecting them to the community through work, because work was my value system. Growing up on a farm, if you can work, you're valuable. Mm -hmm. So we, we have a six-acre farm down there. We have greenhouses. We do lawn care and landscaping for senior citizens. So the idea of giving these kids someplace where they can begin to experience some success and begin to know you are valuable, someone does care, and there is a way out. So, so that was the heartbeat of that ministry, and it grew and did that for 18 years. We gave it to the YMCA in 2002, so it's still legally as part of the YMCA down in uh, the <clears throat> Tacoma-Pierce County area. Uh, so that spread, did that for 18 years. Uh, lots of miracles. We opened a teen center in Puyallup that's still there. We opened that 10 years ago. The gal who runs that is a girl I met in the park when she was 12 years old. Now she's wow. probably 34 or 35, and she took my job when I left there and runs it. So beautiful stuff there. But um, anyway, God asked me to leave that in 2010, and I said, well, where am I going to go? What do you want me to do? And he said, I'll tell you after you leave. And so at that point in my life, I was 
part of the YMCA, making decent money, good benefits, blah, 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 all that. Mm -hmm. And God said to walk away from all that. So I walked away from that in January of 2010, honestly not knowing what I was going to do. What God evolved out of that was this idea of I started the One Another Foundation. And this is an organization that's focused on empowering and mobilizing people to love and serve others in the context of their own community. Because the belief was, since I gave my life in 91, 92, was John 15, 12, Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And I always thought, if we just did that, it would like change the world, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so let's just help people do that. Let's just help people love one another. So that's what that organization was all about. We work with 22 nonprofits in the Puyallup area. They're kind of like the frontline providers that are out there <clears throat> ministering to the needs of people. And then in the Puyallup area, there's about 62, 63 churches. About 24,000 people go to those churches. And if we could get 10% of them to love others the way Christ loved them mm -hmm. through these organizations, it would change our community. So, so that's kind of the vision and the heart behind uh, the One Another Foundation. And, and in my personal walk, you know, I look back in those 18 years of friends and servants, I had given my life to God and was trying to use it for his purposes. But I never really had peace and joy. You know, it was always kind of this performance type thing. Again, God used it. Lots of amazing stuff happened. But the mindset was I never really knew if I was okay with God. And after I left there and started the One Another Foundation, just a whole new level of trusting God because I, like, had no clue what I was doing. You had no money. You just had to really hang on and really go deep inside. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> and if I can give props to a 150-year-old book, Andrew Murray, Abiding in Christ, written in the 1870s, it's like, that idea of really being his and abiding in him and him in you, and that just really rocked my world and changed my life about six years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so I look back of accepting Christ as my Savior, then 10 years later allowing him to be Lord and mm -hmm. working for him, and then about six years ago what I would call just the full surrender, that it's no longer I who lives but Christ who lives in me. And it's just been a blast since then. I'm <laughs> just following God and trusting him and... Um, and then a year and a half ago, he asked me to leave the one other foundation that I had started. Mm. And I'm like, I don't what well, Now I, what do I do? What am I going to do? You know? yeah. But I know when he says leave, leave, I drug my feet for probably six months, but I eventually left. Um, and one of the things God spoke to me down at a, that, um, Kevin Plow, a, a uh, gospel movement thing about a year and a half ago down there, was I felt like God said, I want you to be a free agent to the body of Christ. I want you to just go wherever I tell you to go, do whatever I tell you to do, to really stir up the body of Christ to believe for transformation and to see the body of Christ be all that she can be. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the line I use now is the vision is to see the local church and its members living, loving, and serving their community in such a way that the world will know that Jesus Christ is real because there will be no other explanation mm -hmm. for this radical, selfless love. Mm. And it's like... And unfortunately, that's not necessarily our reputation. <laughs> you know, people aren't driving by the church going, oh, my goodness, those are those people that love others more than themselves. I can't believe what they're doing. You know, and it's like, but that ought to be our reputation. Mm -hmm. You know, we ought to be loving and serving others the way Christ loved and served us. And so you that's know, my passion. Yeah. You know, as I'm listening to you, I'm hearing kind of a theme in the sense of, uh, and you've said this term a few times, God spoke to me. Mm -hmm. So... For those of the listeners that are out there now, there's uh, there's some mature believers, and then there, I know that there are people who are searching just like you were. Mm -hmm. How does God speak to you when 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 you've gone through these right. situations right. in your life? 
can can you can you go back and say this is how God spoke to me? Yeah. Um yeah, I think that's one of those mysteries that many people try to explain. It is hard to explain. Is it an audible voice? Um it's like an audible voice inside, and so it has been that. Many times, you know, God uses whatever he needs to to get to us, I think. So many times there are circumstantial things that bring us to that place, but a lot of times for me, it's in those those times of prayer, just in solitude with him and just really being in his presence and listening and asking, you know. And I think what I tell people, this is my best advice to everybody, is to how do we stay in that position where we're able to hear anything that God says? Because mm-hmm. typically what we do is we come up with our two best ideas, then we go to God and say, God, help me, help me choose one of my two best ideas. And it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> what did God want to do, you mm-hmm. know? So... You know, and that's hard as human beings because we want to be in control. So I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, being in a position where we're willing to say, not my will, but your will be done. Yeah. You know, until we're willing to say that, it's, it is hard to hear his will because mm-hmm. we're filtering it through our will. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, for me, many times it's in, that, it's in those times of prayer, um, sometimes in times of worship. But really it's just, you know, but a lot of it comes, I believe, from the expectancy that God can speak to us, and God will speak to us. God, God does do that, huh? yeah. And I think a lot of people don't really believe that, so they're not looking for it, they're not listening. Mm-hmm. And they're not, uh, there's there's kind of that silence and solitude of of what you said, expect, uh, expectancy, mm-hmm. and then patience as God speaks to you. I know uh, for me, uh, this was back in the late 80s where the Lord gave me a word about my future, and it was, have no thought of your own in the matter. And I'm like, okay, I I don't know what that actually means, but whatever that means, I'm not supposed to, it's not part of my plan or or thought process. And sure enough, um, this could be a program in itself. (laughs) Through circumstances, we ended up in Muckleteo, Washington, with no thought ever of moving from the Midwest to mm-hmm. Muckleteo, Washington. Yep. Yep. And and the Lord somehow uh, orchestrates those things in our lives that we don't necessarily have plans for, but but in that process, he gives us peace, doesn't he? Right. Oh, as yeah. we're reading his word, mm-hmm. as we're praying, as we're walking in obedience and then walking in faith, mm-hmm. yep. he gives us that that ability to to trust him in the decisions that we're making. Right. So a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. you've uh, um, have moved out of that situation. So right. n- now you're you're a free agent. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a very interesting life, and it's very difficult to explain to people. But yeah, I do a few different things. Um, do a lot with the John Seventeen Fellowship, which is a network of pastors in our community. And over the last four years, have really begun to come together and build a spirit of unity. And so. That focus, we have 20, 25 pastors show up each month, is really about, you know, promoting and encouraging the unity of the body of Christ, the mission of God in our community, and the ministry of the local church. And that's just been, and we've prayed for that in our community for 15 years. Probably many people prayed long before that, but I've been part of praying for that for the last 15 years, and we're just seeing it begin to happen. And so... I kind of do a lot of the networking there between bringing the pastors together in small groups and larger groups and helping. We're beginning to do some things together. The Easter meal we've done the last two years together where we've had 700 people from the community come, uh, 20 churches involved in putting on a spread for them, dinner, games for the kids, things like that. So so we're starting to mobilize and do some things together. So that's a chunk of my life. The other piece is the Young Adult Initiative, which is really trying to empower uh, 20 to 30 year olds to really again believe for who they are in Christ and to live that out in their community to demonstrate the love of God share the gospel and further the kingdom so 
Other than that, I do a lot of networking with business leaders because I've been in the community for 24 years and have been fortunate enough not to shoot myself in the foot in public. You know, <laughs> I, you get a little bit of credibility, and so that allows you to help network people together. And so that would, people would call me a connector. Um, but really my passion is just to see the body of Christ just alive and well and really influencing the community so that the world will know that Jesus Christ is real. Can you share, can you think of an example here of, over the last year or so of of something that's happened within that uh, fellowship of pastors where there's, there's uh, that God has used uh, yeah. that situation? Yeah, I think one of the most beautiful miracles that has happened is we've seen probably three or four new churches come to Puyallup in the last three or four years, church plants, and uh-huh. we've been able to have, the first time we did, we had one of those young guys come in, and, you know, there's all the things a young guy could carry, like whether it's the pride and arrogance of thinking I'm the only one who's going to do it right or the fear of, oh, my gosh, I'm going to fail, and here's all these other guys. But to be able to bring him in and lay hands on him and pray for him and welcome him to the team. And you just saw all the potential of spirits, of division, all those things just melt away because of the love and the unity. So that was just one of the most powerful things we've seen happen. It's amazing. Well, we've been speaking with Bill Bauer, who uh, has shared his testimony about the goodness and graciousness of God. We hope that you've been encouraged this morning and today, as you've been hearing, Heart of the City. You've been listening to this KGNW special, Heart of the City. For more information about how your pastor or ministry can be featured on KGNW, call Chuck Olmsted at 206-269-6216 or go to KGNW.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.